Welcome to Skim This. Even on an off election year, we still got some pretty big surprises at the polls on Tuesday. We'll break down Election Day 2021 and tell you why Democrats are sending out an SOS. And over in Washington, the Supremes heard two challenges this week to the new Texas abortion law. We're not mind readers, but we'll break down which arguments against the law might have convinced the court to block it. Later, world leaders are in Scotland to talk about lowering emissions and saving the planet. One thing that's probably not helping is corporate greenwashing. We'll break down some industries where greenwashing really needs to get washed out. And finally, we're telling you why women are so good at investing their money. Seriously. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Tuesday was election day. And by the time we got results on Wednesday morning, there seemed to be a common theme. This is a sonic boom of a wake-up call for Democrats. So let's break down what happened in some of the big races and why Democrats are sounding the alarm bells. Let's start in Virginia. The governor's race between Democrat Terry McAuliffe and Republican Glenn Youngkin was a total nail-biter, and one seen as a fresh referendum on former President Trump, who endorsed Youngkin. And Youngkin won. His victory shows that Republicans who accept Trump's endorsement can still win. Though, we'll point out, Youngkin definitely walked a tightrope, because he didn't let Trump campaign with him and only accepted his endorsement. Youngkin also ran on a lot of cultural issues, like what students are taught in schools. The fight over teaching critical race theory has become a hot-button issue around the country, and running on education and other local issues in Virginia turned out suburban voters, and women in particular, to vote Republican, which could be a strategy that gives Republicans an edge going into midterms. Next, let's talk about New Jersey, where the race for governor was way closer than anyone expected. New Jersey is a reliably blue state, so you'd think the governor's race should have been a slam dunk for Democratic incumbent Phil Murphy. But not so fast. It took a full day after the polls closed for the AP to call the race for Murphy. Even though Murphy ended up winning, Dems were still getting pretty nervous. Both Virginia and New Jersey are states President Biden won in 2020 by double digits. But now, Republicans feel more confident about having a shot there in next year's midterms. Beyond governor's races, a high-profile progressive ballot measure also failed. Voters in Minneapolis rejected a proposal to reform their police department one year after the murder of George Floyd. But it wasn't all bad news for Dems. Eric Adams became the second black mayor elected in New York City, and Michelle Wu became the first woman and person of color to be elected the mayor of Boston. Meanwhile, voters in Austin, Texas, rejected a ballot measure to expand the police department, and voters in Cleveland, Ohio, approved a civilian-led community policing commission to review police misconduct cases. Still, Dems were hoping for more than a few small victories. So what did we learn from Tuesday? Republicans are energized and look even more likely to now take back the House and Senate in 2022. While Dems say they can chalk their losses up to a few things, including Biden's super low approval rating. Political commentators have also pointed out Voters are unhappy with the direction of the pandemic, which continues to interfere in everyday life. Plus, watching Dems fight it out on Capitol Hill may not be inspiring confidence in what the party can actually do when it's handed the keys. 
So pressure's on for Dems to finally pass that social spending bill to turn their luck around before next year's midterms. All right, let's get to some other headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, late on Tuesday, this happened. Pfizer's mini-dose of COVID vaccine for kids 5 to 11 years old got a thumbs up from a CDC advisory panel, and the first shots could be given out within hours. Here's what you need to know. On Tuesday, the CDC officially recommended that kids aged 5 to 11 years old get Pfizer's COVID vaccine. So now, kids under 12 can finally get vaxxed. Though, that doesn't mean kids can just show up at any old vaccine site tomorrow. The children's COVID vaccine only contains one-third of the dose adults got, meaning Pfizer had to make the kids' version separately, and they're still distributing it around the country. But the shots should be available within a matter of days, everywhere from children's hospitals, schools, pharmacies, and pediatricians' offices. And finally, if you're doing the holiday math and want your kids to be considered fully vaxxed by Christmas, try to get their first dose in before November 19th. Our next headline involves something else you might want to sort out before the holidays. Today, President Biden announced that a lot of private employers have until January 4th to get their employees vaxxed. Let's get specific. Starting early in the new year, companies with more than 100 employees will have to make sure all those employees have had two doses of Moderna or Pfizer, or the one-shot J&J vaccine. It's that, or having their employees undergo and potentially pay for their own weekly testing. Companies that don't comply could face fines of up to almost $14,000 per violation. But enforcement on this one could be tricky. That responsibility falls to the Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA. State-level OSHAs monitor companies in about half of U.S. states, leaving an understaffed federal OSHA to take care of the rest. And OSHA's going to likely need to rely on complaints to investigate, plus limited spot checks. So how well the government's actually going to be able to enforce this vaccine mandate is still TBD. And our final headline this week is about Facebook. Sorry, Meta. The company says it will no longer recognize us automatically in photos or videos and will delete more than 1 billion stored facial recognition templates. Here's what's happening. Remember last time you uploaded a picture of you and your friends to Facebook and it suggested who to tag? Facebook can do that because it's had its own facial recognition tools for a decade. Privacy advocates have long criticized Facebook for its facial recognition projects, and even the government had expressed concern. Well, this week, Facebook heard the music and said, we're getting out of the facial recognition game and deleting the digital face templates for over a billion users. Which I guess is great news, but also, wait, you had a facial recognition template of me in the first place? Over the last few months, we've talked a lot about Texas Senate Bill 8, or SB 8, a law that bans abortions in Texas after about six weeks of pregnancy. Because many women don't even know they're pregnant at six weeks, SB 8's been described as a near-total ban on abortion. 
It's also unprecedented because of how it gives average citizens and not law enforcement the power to sue anybody who receives an abortion after six weeks or anybody who helps someone receive the abortion. Opponents of SB8 tried to stop it from going into effect and asked the Supreme Court to block it. Back in early September, the court's three liberal justices and Chief Justice John Roberts voted to do that. But that was four votes to stop the Texas law against five conservative votes to let it go into effect, which it did. In the weeks that followed, abortion providers in Texas, fearful of being sued, have been turning some women away. Many of those women have traveled to neighboring Oklahoma to try to schedule an abortion at one of the state's now completely overwhelmed clinics. According to the New York Times, some women who were unable to receive appointments have been forced to take their unwanted pregnancies to term. This week, SB8 had another day at the Supreme Court, where its nine justices heard a pair of legal challenges to stop the Texas law. One of those challenges was brought by the U.S. government, and the other by abortion providers in Texas. So let's roll some tape from the court and hear what two legal analysts think about what the Supremes might decide. My name is Caroline Mala Corbin, and I am a professor of law at the University of Miami School of Law. My name is Seema Mohapatra, and I am the Murray Visiting Professor of Law at SMU Dedman School of Law. To set the scene, assuming the same four justices who tried to stop SB8 in September are down to do the same now, only one more conservative justice needs to be convinced to block the law. Both our analysts thought one exchange could have gone a long way towards doing that. It was between Liberal Justice Elena Kagan and the U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogar, who repped the U.S. in trying to stop SB8. You're not suggesting, General Prelogar, that this right is different, are you? If this exact law were issued by a state that wanted to be hostile to gun rights, your argument would be the same, would it not? It would be exactly the same, because the threat here is to the supremacy of federal law that's accomplished by trying to cut off the channels of judicial review that Congress recognized in Section 1983 would be vital to vindicating federal rights, whether that's Second Amendment rights or rights to religious liberty or here the right to abortion. Corbin says Kagan revealed how this Texas law could be mimicked in other states for issues totally different than abortion. So right now in Texas, it is almost impossible to challenge this law that has essentially banned abortion. And if this regime is adapted by a liberal state, you might have something like New York essentially banning the right to bear arms. Mohapatra thinks that point probably caught the eye of at least one conservative justice. I think bringing those points up was probably the best way to make this argument, because this is not a court that is going to be sympathetic to the fact that, you know, most of the people that are impacted uh, with lack of access to abortion are going to be, you know, poor women, often women of color that are not able to travel to another state to get access to abortion care. So I think having this kind of tactic of showing listen, these rights that you care about could be impacted if another state decided to create a law like this, so you better watch out. I think that is going to be more effective. Another key exchange was between conservative Justice Brett Kavanaugh and the Solicitor General of Texas, Judd Stone. In it, Kavanaugh grilled Stone about another potentially problematic element of the Texas law. Are you saying that if an injunction were entered and some clinic performed abortions now that were then legal under current law, 
the law changes in the future such that the state could, going forward, restrict abortions at an earlier time. Are you saying that the state could then retroactively allow suits that would reach back and retroactively impose liability on entities that were committing lawful acts as of the time? It would be private plaintiffs again, Your Honor, but but of course— Is that a yes? Yes, Your Honor, yes. What Kavanaugh is getting at is the idea that this law could open the door to something totally weird— Punishment in the future for something that's currently legal. Corbin said, consider it this way. Let's say years from now, Texas passes an even more strict ban and says no abortions after four weeks. SB 8 could open the door to retroactively sue somebody who got an abortion at four weeks today. That exchange with Justice Kavanaugh about the retroactivity of the law is yet another example of the way the law is structured to favor one side. Mohapatra agreed and thought Kavanaugh's beef with this part of the law was worth paying attention to. He's definitely indicating kind of the concern about the huge chilling effect that the mechanism of SB8 would have on people exercising something that might be perfectly legal. And so Kavanaugh does seem to be poking holes in that. And this is the kind of reasoning that you would not necessarily expect from a justice that has, on other occasions, been skeptical about how strong the abortion right is. And the final turning point our analysts spotted wasn't a back and forth at all. It was actually the rare moment Solicitor General Preligar had time to speak without being interrupted. In her closing argument, she basically warned the justices, if you let SB 8 stand, it could let states deny people's rights without the Supreme Court being able to stop that. And you wouldn't want that, right? Across the arguments this morning, Texas's position is that no one can sue, not the women whose rights are most directly affected, not the providers who have been chilled in being able to provide those women with care, and not the United States in this suit. They say that federal courts just have no authority under existing law to provide any mechanism to redress that harm. And if that is true, if a state can just take this simple mechanism of taking its enforcement authority and giving it to the general public, backed up with a bounty of $10,000 or $1 million, if they can do that, then no constitutional right is safe. No constitutional decision from this court is safe. That would be an intolerable state of affairs, and it cannot be the law. Our constitutional guarantees cannot be that fragile, and the supremacy of federal law cannot be that easily subject to manipulation. Here's Mohopatra. I think that was a very, very strong closing argument that if other states are going to copy this mechanism, watch out because this is not going to end here. And I think that will likely be the reason for the conservative justice in the court to be skeptical of this law. I think the Solicitor General had a great first week. Oh, yeah. Did we mention Monday's Supreme Court case fell on Elizabeth Prelogar's first day on the job? No big deal. So what comes next? Most Supreme Court decisions are handed down months after oral arguments. But SB 8 was fast-tracked for review, since there's a pretty strong case to be made that people's lives are being affected each day its constitutionality isn't resolved. But being on this fast track also means we don't know when we'll get a ruling. It could be days or weeks. So stay tuned. As for how the court will rule, both Mohopatra and Corbin thought SB 8 faced a good amount of skepticism from conservative justices this week. So its days might be numbered. 
But Corbin says that with such a conservative Supreme Court and with politicians in so many states focused on restricting abortion, abortion rights in the U.S. are far from secure, regardless of what happens to SB 8. I think that one of the hallmarks of laws trying to limit abortion is that it's very much like whack-a-mole. The court strikes down one attempt as unconstitutional, and there is always another attempt that tries a slightly different strategy. Eric Vetro is the voice coach to the stars. From Ariana Grande to Shawn Mendes to John Legend, he's the person they want by their sides backstage at every concert. On his new podcast, Backstage Pass, you'll hear intimate conversations with Eric's most famous students about their singing process, their lives and careers. Like Rosalia on her work ethic and how perfectionism and persistence made her career and Ariana Grande on why perfect pitch can be both a blessing and a curse. They'll demonstrate their favorite vocal exercises and you'll get tips on how to improve your own singing. Listen to Backstage Pass wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's get back to the show. The UN's big climate conference is happening this week in Glasgow, and we've been seeing one word in our news feeds repeatedly. Greenwashing. Greenwashing is when a company tries to make something look environmentally friendly when it's actually not. And once you start looking for greenwashing, you'll see it everywhere. Last week on Capitol Hill, execs from Shell to Exxon to Chevron were grilled about their industry's role in climate change and disinformation. And they were accused of talking a big game about green energy while actually investing way less in renewable energy compared to fossil fuels. Here was Representative Katie Porter quizzing the president of Shell. Shell's 2020 annual report called for between 19 and $22 billion in near-term spending. How much is Shell spending to spend on renewable energy? This year we'll be spending between two and $3 billion. Two and $3 billion on renewables and energy solutions. This does not look like an adequate response to one of the defining challenges of our time. This is greenwashing. Shell is trying to fool people into thinking it's addressing the climate crisis when what it's actually doing is to continue to put money into fossil fuels. It's a little overwhelming to think about how we can play a role in stopping greenwashing as consumers. What are we going to do? Not heat our homes for the winter? Another industry we all interact with that has a bit of a reputation for greenwashing is fashion. Fashion is now one of the most polluting industries in the world. We're putting too much product out there, most of that product ending up in landfills. So it's hyper fast and hyper cheap. When we throw clothes away, they often end up in landfills, where they can take centuries to break down if they break down at all. That's because most clothing today, from your favorite stretchy t-shirt to your go-to gym leggings, contains synthetic materials derived from fossil fuels. And the environmental damage caused by the fashion industry doesn't just start when we clean out our closets. Producing clothing is also pretty bad for the environment. The fashion industry is estimated to be responsible for 10% of the world's carbon emissions every year. And that's not the only problem. According to the UN, it takes almost 4,000 liters of water to make a single pair of jeans. 
And we should also consider the chemical treatments that get applied to fabrics in factories can leave sometimes toxic runoff in rivers around the world. So each piece of clothing can have a pretty big impact on the environment. And when you consider that fast fashion companies are in the business of convincing you to buy new outfits every season, those costs can really add up. Recently, a lot of fast fashion brands like ASOS, Zara, and H&M have been trying to counteract that by rolling out ethical clothing lines that are supposed to alleviate our guilt. But those might not be as responsible as they're claiming to be either. To learn more, we called up Elizabeth Shank, a staff member of Swiss NGO Public Eye, which has been looking into Zara's manufacturing processes. After a year-long investigation into how just one hoodie was made, Shank is skeptical about any claims fast fashion companies make. To date, we must say that there's no label or any so-called responsible collection which covers the whole production chain of a garment for social and environmental aspects. When places like Zara say they're trying to improve their sustainable practices, what they could be doing is trying to attract skeptical consumers without changing their underlying business model. We should not overlook that the fashion companies use their advertising to encourage people to make permanent impulse purchases. So to buy things that they actually do not need. And from an ecological perspective, that's outrageous. There are more and more consumers asking for sustainable products. However, their basic interest is not in selling sustainable products, but in making profits. They adapt their wording in claiming they sell more sustainable and fair products. However, they do not change something at the core model of the fast fashion industry. Okay, so that's a lot of bad news. But if we're all going to need clothes at some point, what should we do? Shank has some solutions. Do clothing swaps with family and friends, buy secondhand if you can, and get politically engaged. We need actually to change the business model of the big brands. And for this, we need to push them to do this. We can push them by getting active, to get involved in political debates, by supporting, for example, campaigns from the Clean Clothes campaign. We need binding legal rules and targets to implement actually living wages and transparency within the supply chain. To help spot some sustainable places to shop, we've left a link in our show notes where you can check out a lot of brands' commitments to the environment and to fair wages. So that's greenwashing on the level of an individual purchase, like a $20 t-shirt that may not be as environmentally friendly as a brand would like you to think. But allegations of greenwashing don't disappear when the amount of money changing hands goes up. It's also a problem in larger financial markets, where environmentally motivated investors have the potential to spend millions or billions of dollars to address climate concerns. The only problem is, some of these environmentally friendly investors aren't exactly making the most environmentally sound investments. To see how that can happen, let's talk about three letters you may have heard. ESG. ESG is shorthand for Environmental, Social, and Governance Investing. That's Debbie Carlson, a freelance writer who covers ESG investing for MarketWatch. It has the idea that you can use your investments to improve the way a company handles its environmental exposure, the way it treats workers, or how it governs the company itself. ESG investing has become huge. 
it's now one of three investment dollars in the U.S. somehow tied to ESG investing. That's a significant amount of money. That's $17 trillion. With that amount of money, you're seeing more investment firms wanting to get on the ESG bandwagon. With that comes a little more scrutiny. And that scrutiny is necessary because what defines an ESG investment is kind of undefined. It's a label that can be slapped on companies even if they aren't the most sustainable or ethical. And when it comes to greenwashing in particular, some of these environmentally friendly investment funds might not be as great as they're claiming to be. Recently, the think tank Influence Map found that 55% of funds that said they were climate-focused exaggerated their environmental claims. So we asked Carlson, if we are investing, either in individual companies or in our 401k at work, how can we know if our investments are as green as we want them to be? One trick is to find a company or a fund's ticker symbol, that short abbreviation they use. From there... A good way to start is go to a place like Morningstar, which does great x-rays of the holdings in a portfolio. And they do things like sustainability ratings on funds. They do things like carbon scores. That's a really good way for you to quickly look at what's in a fund and what the holdings are. There's another group called As You Sow that also does a little x-ray on funds that are, say, fossil fuel free or deforestation free or gender equity focused. And you can put the tinker symbol in and they'll give you a little scorecard. Those are good tools to start with. As we dug into all of this, it was actually kind of depressing to see how many potential examples of greenwashing there are. A lot of companies say they'll go net zero emissions or carbon neutral, but how they achieve that matters. For instance, according to climate scientists, planting trees to offset a company's carbon footprint probably won't make up for their other unsustainable behavior. And even though we've spent this story talking about corporate greenwashing, it seems like it's happening at a country level too. Like when Brazil showed up at the UN climate talks this week, promising to end illegal deforestation, even though its president has spent over two years gutting environmental protections. So as we wait to see what countries come up with at the UN climate talks, we'll be taking everything with a grain of salt. Because as we've seen, there's a lot of room for people to talk a big game and not really act on it. If you already know what Let's Go Brandon is about, you probably don't need us to explain it. But if it just sounds like some innocent cheer at a kid's soccer game, here's what's actually going on in, okay, we'll admit, a little over 60 seconds. This whole thing started about a month ago at a NASCAR race in Alabama. That's when winning driver Brandon Brown was pulled over by a sportscaster for a post-race interview. Oh my God, it's just such an unbelievable moment. Brandon, you also told me, as you can hear the chants from the, the crowd, let's go, Brandon. To us, that just sounded like a reporter making an honest mistake or hoping to distract from the politically inspired F-bombs drowning out her interview. Either way, that's not how a lot of people interpreted it. Instead, to many, that clip became evidence of a media cover-up of President Biden's growing unpopularity. 
So on that October afternoon, a meme was born, as Let's Go Brandon became a conservative code for insulting the president and raging against apparent cancel culture. And since then, it's been popping up everywhere. Along highways. The picture of the message on one of those big road signs. On airplanes. Southwest Airlines is launching an internal investigation after a pilot reportedly signed off a message to passengers by saying, let's go Brandon. Or in the title of a rap song that briefly topped the iTunes charts. These times people waking up to anything. Go Brandon, but we all know what the saying means. Former President Trump is even trying to cash in on the trend, selling Let's Go Brandon shirts in exchange for a $45 donation. As with other trends, when a 75-year-old politician says it, it's no longer cool. But in this case, that might be the point. As one political scientist noted, Let's Go Brandon is the rare political slogan that's both spicy and that both an 11-year-old and your grandmother wouldn't be embarrassed to say. So it might not be going anywhere anytime soon. How'd we do? Want us to skim another topic from the news? Tweet at us with your suggestion using the hashtag SkimThis. Recently, we stumbled on a headline that caught our eye. Women may be better investors than men. The article dug into new data from the financial services company Fidelity. And what Fidelity found was that over the past 10 years, women made, on average, 0.4% more on their investment returns than men. And while 0.4 might sound small, over the course of 10 years, that can really add up. And just in the past few years, Fidelity found that 67% of women are investing in their retirement, up 15% just since 2018. And millennial women are leading the charge, with 71% investing in retirement. To learn more about what Fidelity found and what makes women so good at managing money, we called up Lorna Capista, the head of women investors and customer engagement at Fidelity. So, Lorna, what patterns did you observe about why women have earned more money on their returns than men? So there are about three things that women do that are a recipe for success. Number one, they think about their goals and what's important to them and then they align their investments to achieve them. They also take a buy and hold approach. So they're not trading as much as men. In fact, men trade about two times higher. And then third, they're more consistently investing. So once they get started, they're actually adding money to investing. Let's say it could be every paycheck or on a quarterly basis. So they're not trying to time the market. And those three things clearly are working for them. Are other people not doing these same things or taking these same investment approaches? Well, what I will say we've seen for women is they do a bit more research before they get started and they really take the time to be thoughtful about what's important to them and the time frame that they're looking to invest, as well as how much they can, through that time, stomach the ups and downs relative to we did see in the analysis that we did that men were trading during that time at a two times a higher rate. So what I would say, just based on kind of the data and what we heard, there are those differences. But the recipe for success that she puts in place is actually a recipe that's good for everybody. And so there's opportunity, I always think now, to invest like a woman. Because when you do and you take that approach, she does really well. So Lorna, we've talked about the wait and see approach, and that kind of flies in the face of a lot of the investment news that we tend to cover, like GameStop and meme stocks becoming really popular and people getting you know rich quick or losing a lot quickly. 
I'm curious what you think are the cultural barriers towards more women and, and people in general from achieving like real financial literacy as opposed to kind of maybe the cues that they get from financial news that they read about. First, I would say the media is talking about what's hot now and getting exciting about it. When it comes to your money, what's actually really most important is we're working hard for our money. Women have been on an amazing economic and education trajectory, and they're getting in the game, as we talked about, particularly millennial women, more than ever. And what the big changes and needs to continue is around normalizing the money conversation. And that needs to and is changing from a really young age, where oftentimes this male culture or young boys are really taught to do more with their money earlier on. Women may have been told it's not polite to talk about money. We've got to change the game from very early for everybody. I see that change happening before us. And I think we're in a moment right now for those women who aren't feeling as confident It doesn't matter where you are or what you know, there is help and there's education to to help you get there. And it's really just finding those right sources that you can trust to take the right path. Before we go, I'm curious what your own experience was like with money and investing. So my story is a really interesting one in that I've been working in the financial industry for over 20 years. And in full transparency, up until about six plus years ago, I was not as involved in my finances. I'm married. I have three kids, three dogs and a cat and two sets of aging parents. And so busy life had a growing family. And my husband stepped forward and was really leading the charge. That changed when I joined Fidelity and I stepped forward. And it became more of a conversation about our money, what we are doing to achieve our goals, and then making sure to kind of stay with that plan and regularly check in together. So for me, I am taking more of that invest like a woman approach, but I wasn't doing that earlier. And I'll tell you, big change for me, stress in life. Super stressed about money before that seven years, wasn't fully in the know about what's going on. And this has really put me in a different place where I actually feel much more empowered in my life and the decisions I make every day because of it. That's awesome. Lorna, thank you so much uh, for chatting with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Skim This. Today's episode was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. Our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway. The senior producer of Skim This is Luke Vargas, and Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out our other podcast, 9 to 5-ish with The Skim, where we're talking all things career. Follow it wherever you get your podcasts.